As Christians, we can sometimes take for granted the Bibles we hold in our hands today. Stop and think about it, and soon lots of questions come to mind. How did all 66 books of the Bible come together? When did that happen? And how do we know we're not missing any books? My guest today is Michael Kruger, and in our conversation, he walks us through the history of the canon, sharing his own story of having to wrestle with how we got the Bible as it exists today. Along the way, he responds to common questions and misconceptions people tend to have related to our Bibles, how they were formed, and what it means for our faith. Michael Kruger is the President and Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also a leading scholar on the origins and development of the New Testament canon, and the author of Canon Revisited, Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Books from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Yeah, it's good to be with you. So uh, today we're going to talk about the Bible and more specifically this idea of the canon, this concept of canonicity, something that I think for some Christians they might be familiar with that idea, but for others uh, they might not have ever even heard that word thrown around before, but it's an important concept. But before we jump into questions of how did we come to get this book that we call the Bible, what was the process that brought it to us? How can we be confident in it? I wanted to highlight maybe a, a more basic or at least personal question uh, that I think is really important, one that you highlight in your book. The real question that I think each of us has to wrestle with at a more fundamental level is how do I know, how do I know these books are truly God's word? Uh, and that kind of is, is the more fundamental question. Do you remember when you first started wrestling with that question uh, as a, a younger person, presumably? Yeah, I do. I, I remember it vividly. In fact, it was very formative for me, and, and some will have heard the story before, but I, I came face-to-face with canon issues as an undergraduate, um, at least at a detailed level, when I was at UNC Chapel Hill in a religion class. And the professor was saying that, hey, you can't trust this collection of books. It's filled so with this wasn't a believer. He was... No, this, this is a secular religion class, uh, and he argued, no, the, the canon is filled with forgeries, uh, pseudonymous works, people pretending to be people they're not. Um, books written very late and are unreliable, and many of them filled with fabrications. So he called into question the whole canonical enterprise. That that professor was Bart Ehrman, who many people will recognize that name now, as um, one of the most prolific sort of authors out there now critiquing the Christian movement. At the time, of course, he had not written all those books. I didn't really know what he would become. Mm. Well, how old were you at the time? 18, 19. Wow. Yeah, so... Was that like a... Did it... Did it shake your faith? Would you use that? What language would you use to describe? Yeah, those yeah, it did. It, it it sort of rattled my theological and, and spiritual cage, so to speak. So you know, I was a committed Christian at, at college. I'd grown up in a Christian home. Uh, I was doing my best to live a Christian life at a big secular university, but I, it quickly became apparent to me that I that I didn't have answers to the questions he was raising, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And so, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it was a crisis of faith. But it was definitely a fundamental challenge that I had to deal with. And, and I was watching other Christians in the class deal with it. Mm. And they were, there was all kinds of reactions. Some, some were pretending it wasn't happening, kind of putting their, their head in the sand and like, okay, I'm just going to pretend this isn't happening. Others were, were uh, quite willing to hear it and believe it and then chuck the faith because mm. they were probably just looking for a reason to do it. And then there were others who were looking to sort of do this hybrid, like, well, maybe I can believe everything I believe and then also believe what 
scholars were saying and kind of mashed them together. And so there was all kinds of reactions. And so I knew I, I knew I had to do something to come up with some answers. Mm. Let's talk about those three reactions that you witnessed that I think all of us can either think of examples of, or we can even perhaps if we're uh, attuned to ourselves, we can sense temptations in some of those different directions in our own hearts. Um, speak to the person who, who kind of the, the tendency was to put their head in the sand and not really want to have to face the challenges. How, how prevalent do you think that is? Oh, I think it's very prevalent. And I think it's not only prevalent in, in individuals, I think it's prevalent in a lot of Christian culture. So I think there's a wing of Christian evangelical culture that's sort of uh, maybe a little bit anti-intellectual, is a little bit scared of going too far down the academic path, maybe thinks, well, we don't need to have answers to that. We just have to believe. Yeah, just have faith. Uh, yeah. And then when someone expresses doubts or questions, you sort of bury it. You're like, we're not allowed to ask those questions. You're not allowed to express those doubts. And so that that is very much out there. And I imagine people listening to this podcast would say, yeah, maybe 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 they grew up in a church like that, because mm. we probably still know churches today that are, that are like that. So yeah, you, people have that as, as Christian culture, and then individuals carry it to places like university settings, where when they come across a problem, they say, well, you know what, this is separate from my faith. I don't have to answer this, because my faith is one thing, and this is another thing, and I'm going to mm. keep them in, in two different worlds. So what's wrong with the answer that I think it gets thrown around a lot, that seems like it can, it's true to some extent, this the idea that you just have to believe. We can't, the Christian religion is fundamentally about trusting in God and trusting in what he said in his word. So when it comes to questions of the Bible's origins and why it is that we can know that this is truly God's word, we ultimately just have to accept that. Well, well, it's partly true. One of the reasons that line gets used so much, because it's partly true, there is, there is a reality of the fact that, of course, you take your faith, uh, or take what you believe on, on faith. You, you don't know everything. Um, there's a lot of mysteries. There's a lot of things you can't solve. And so, yeah, I mean, we all agree that, that you have to trust in certain things you can't see. The problem, though, in the way it's used most of the time is that people almost give the impression that when you say just believe, they mean even if it's against the facts, mm. even if it's against the truth. And we're never called to do that. And we're never called to to think that that's true of Christianity, as if Christianity is something that we blindly follow, despite the fact that it's so lacking in historical credibility, that's not the argument. And so we would say, yeah, of course you just believe, but you don't believe in spite of the facts or contra to the facts, but that we believe the facts fit with what we believe. Mm. And so uh, it's, it's not one or the other, it's both. We believe, yes, faith is fundamental, yes, but there's also a consistency we expect define when we look at Christianity and compare it to the evidence we have. Yeah. Okay, so another one of the people, the types of people that you mentioned was the person who kind of just abandons their faith uh, altogether. What was the, what's the issue there behind that? What would be your response to that kind of, that response to a challenge along the lines of the Bibles? Yeah, this is common too in evangelicalism. There, there are people that we've already discussed who don't want to deal with these problems because they think that's, it's separate from what religion does. And then the second group, is a group that's probably been teetering on the edge of unbelief for years and, you know, maybe just hanging by a thread and maybe they believe because their parents pressured them to or they, they follow Christ at church because it seems like that everyone else is doing it and maybe they were just in it culturally with the Christian movement. But yeah. as soon as you give them one sliver of reason not to be a Christian, they'll jump on it. And, you know, the motives are multidimensional. Uh, you know, in college, one, one doesn't have to think very long for what the motives might be. <laughs> there may be a sense in which that gives them some liberty to, to live how they want to live in their, in their college years, perhaps. But regardless of the motive, the, the reality is that some people are, are looking for a reason to doubt the faith. And here's what's unfortunate about it, is as soon as someone hears an objection from someone like Ehrman or others, if you're in that posture, 
you just assume that he's right. You just assume that there's no counter argument. You just assume, well, hey, there it is. All I need is a reason. Boom, I have the reason. Now I can move on mm. with my life. And I, I think that's also intellectually irresponsible. It sounds extremely intellectually sophisticated to say, I'm abandoning the faith for intellectual reasons. But what's actually happening is that's not what they're doing. They're, they're abandoning the faith for one quick glance at one intellectual claim, mm. not actually doing the hard homework to find out if that claim is true. And so, yeah. so again, it's, it's a little bit of a denial of the evidence also. It's a different way of putting your head in the sand. Well, that's what I was going to say is it feels like those could be very linked together where if someone's experienced uh, a church culture where questions were discouraged, where there wasn't any effort to give intellectual responses to some of these other arguments. Instead, the, the response was just, just believe. They might not even be aware of uh, some of the more robust ways that Christians through the centuries could respond to those kinds of critiques. Yeah, and so one of the things that, that I noticed in that, in that time period and noticed ever since, a lot, of, a lot of Christians assume if they don't have an answer that there's not an answer. Um, and that's an unfortunate reality. They assume, well, if I, don't, if I can't answer the objection, there must not be an answer mm. to the objection. And, and, of course, if you just think about that for more than 30 seconds, you realize that doesn't make any sense. Even if you don't have the answer, why would you think there couldn't be an answer? Especially if you're 19 and at a college, what, what does a 19-year-old know about church history or biblical studies <laughs> or the history of the canon? Hardly anything. And so to say, well, because I don't personally at 19 have an answer, therefore there can't be one, is a, is a little bit of a crazy thing to say. But people do effectively make that argument. Mm, yeah. What do you think is behind the popularity of authors, scholars like Ehrman, books like the ones he's written, where they, they, do, uh, they do seem to enjoy a certain cultural cachet of a, a popularity uh, that then makes it maybe easier for someone to, to read, a, a Christian on the edge to read and embrace? Yeah, well, this isn't a new phenomenon, right? I mean, uh, you know, if you write a book defending the truth of the Gospels, it'll sell a couple copies. If you, if you write a book saying that, that everything you've always believed is wrong, uh, it'll sell a lot of copies. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. You know, part of it is just the conspiracy theorist in all of us. We always resonate with this idea that, wow, what if everything I thought was true is wrong? Or what if established religion is all a lie? Or what if these things never happened and we've been duped? We all fall into the trap of thinking that maybe we could just rewrite history and, and maybe someone's finally told us how it can be done. So I think there's a proclivity in the human nature for that. So it's always harder to defend the Gospels than it is to, to tear them down. Mm. And if you're going to sell books, tearing them down is the way to do it. And I always joke with my students, I, I know that, that, that in order to sell books, you need to tear down the Gospels, because I don't do that in my books, and I know they don't sell nearly as good as other <laughs> people's. So. Uh, okay, so let's jump into then this particular issue of canonicity. So this relates to this topic of which books we consider to be God's Word, which books are, cons- are part of our Bibles. Uh, but tell us a little bit about the word canon. Uh, it might be a word that we're not familiar with in this context. What does that word actually mean, and, and what's the history there? Yeah, so the first thing to get straight is just how to spell it. I mean, my students make this mistake all the time. Canon is is, is typically spelled in most people's minds as C-A-N-N-O-N, and that refers to the sort of canon, and you put a cannonball inside and light a fuse and, <laughs> and, 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 and shoot down the, your medieval enemy and knock down their castle or something like this. And that's that's the word canon. The canon we're using here is, of course, C-N-N-O-N. C-A-N-O-N, just one N in the middle. Um, and that canon word is historically a word that just means standard or rule. And it occurs even in the Bible. Um, it refers to some ultimate sort of measuring rod, so to speak. For so it's, it's kind of a generic term for a standard or rule. Not, yeah, exactly. Not, not inherently about this thing that we call the Bible. No, but in, in Christian circles, most people will hear it, and, and it'll be something related to the biblical canon, right? Which is the which books are our standard, which books are our rule, which books do we turn to. And so when you talk about the canon, you're talking about the ultimate uh, standard for what Christians follow. And so 
the, the term, though, as you pointed out, historically was just a generic term that just meant um, some ultimate uh, measuring standard. But we've, you know, used it historically and theologically as a reference to the biblical collection. And by the way, we didn't make that up in the modern day. That was true even in the early church. We see, you know, scholars by the time of the, the fourth century, even in the early fourth century, and arguably Eusebius is the first one to do this, where he uses the term canon as a reference to the biblical collection. Mm. Well, and that, that's a great segue into what I wanted to talk about next, which is common misconceptions that you've encountered among Christians, maybe even non-Christians, about the idea of the canon and canonicity. Uh, so you mentioned one of them, that this is like a newfangled idea that was developed, uh, you know, maybe in the Reformation or something like that, but uh, it actually exists. This concept of a canon of, of books exists. What are some other misconceptions that you've encountered? Oh, wow, so many. Uh, in fact, I've spent <laughs> a substantive amount of my scholarly work dealing with misconceptions on canon. Um, that have been circulating around. I'll, I'll mention a couple. I mean, probably the most famous is this idea that the canon was decided in, 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 at the Council of Nicaea under the pressure of Constantine, right? Mm. So like a Politically yeah, motivated yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. So, you know, the, the narrative runs something like this. For the first few centuries of the faith, no, no Christians knew what to read. Everybody was reading their own books. There was no decided collection that you could turn to. Everybody had a, a varied collection. Some were reading this and some were reading that. And then only in the fourth century... Constantine, with his political pressure, decided, you know what, we really need a canon, so I'm going to force my to un- own... To unify my yeah, empire. Exactly. I'm going to force my own preferences to bring everyone together, and I'm going to banish the books I don't like and accept the books I do, and thus, uh, you know, voila, there's your canon. And so it's construed as a, a purely human construction, a purely political uh, event. It's, it's an it's, exercise it's, of power. Yeah, it's it's viewed as something that, that it is part of any human culture. Of course humans are going to pick you know, some standard they prefer, and it's no different when it comes to the Bible. And so it just makes it all very human and not divine. So I'm sure a lot of Christians listening right now have heard that exact argument in some religion class, and they, they didn't know how to respond. So what would be your brief kind of way of responding to that charge? <laughs> well, the, this sounds trite, and I don't mean it such, but the response is it's just factually not true. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the formation of the New Testament canon. We don't see any evidence for that at all. Um, Nicaea, as most people realize, if you think if you recite the Nicene Creed, has more to do with the best way to express the divinity of Jesus. Hmm. By the way, it's the best way to express it. It wasn't a, de- a decide the divinity of Jesus as if it was up for grabs. Hmm. It was the best way to articulate it. Um, and, then, and then the other reason is that you know, Constantine had nothing to do with this. Constantine was not even really the major player uh, in, the, in Nicaea anyway. And so it's just simply not true. The other, the, other, the other thing I'll add to it is that the Christians had a, a functioning canon long before Nicaea. Hmm. And I make this in my case, the case in my book, Canon Revisited, and other places as well, which is that there was a core canon, what we could call a core canon, really by the middle of the second century that Christians seemed to be well settled on, even if there was some ongoing debate about the periphery of it. Hmm. So that might then, uh, someone's response could be, that's fine, Nicaea wasn't the place this happened, they're wrong on that. But the, the, the basic point still stands, that the, this, this idea of which book should be included in the Bible was was fundamentally a human decision that someone had to make or some group had to make. And uh, therefore, why should we trust that it's actually reflecting the true collection of God's Word? Yeah, I think there's, that's partly true. Did humans at some point affirm what they believed was true about these books? Well, yeah. But does that make it a human construct? And so what theologians have typically been careful is the way you phrase that. You don't say that humans created the canon or made the canon or built the canon but rather recognize the canon. And that's an important word because the word recognize implies that something already exists mm. before you see it, and you don't make it true. You simply observe that it's true. You observe that it's already there and already a reality. And so 
when someone says it's a human construct, I'm like, well, you got to be more specific about what you mean by that. Because for humans involved, well, yeah, because they have to recognize these books. But by merely recognizing these books, does that mean suddenly that the authority is all on you and not the books? No. Think about someone recognizing that Jesus is the divine son of God. If someone says, I've come to believe that Jesus is the divine son of God, you don't say, well, you've created him in your mind or that you've, you've given him authority he doesn't have. No, you simply recognize what's already true about him. Mm. And that was the way a lot of uh, those early, uh, when was the earliest, what's the earliest list of biblical books that we have access to? Yeah, the earliest list we have is what's called the Muratorian Canon, probably around 180 of the second century. Mm. And what books were included in that list? About 22 out of our current 27. So uh, that would include basically the four gospels, the book of Acts, 13 letters of Paul, and then a handful of other smaller books like First Peter, First John, Revelation, etc. Mm. And so uh, you said twenty-seven. I'm assuming you're yeah then referring just to the New Testament. But Correct. where should we consider? The, where's the Old Testament in this whole discussion? Yeah. So thus far, we've been mainly talking about the New Testament, but the, the Old Testament canon we would argue was settled prior to Jesus even coming, right? And so Christians basically affirmed what their Jewish forefathers had already received and affirmed. And so we could talk about, you know, what evidence is there in the first century that Christians recognize, um, you know, the, the 30, what we call at least 39 books of the Old Testament. And there's a number of layers where you can show that. I mean, one of one most famous place, of course, is the, the lists in Josephus, um, and then a, a, a sort of familiar list also in Philo, both first century Jewish writers, and there's earlier uh, evidence beyond that that's in what we call intertestamental writings. So uh, I think there's good reasons to think that the, the, the Old Testament canon was fairly settled, and so for Christians, it wasn't about figuring it out. It was about building up on it and then asking the question, well, did God give a second stage of revelation? Mm. Did God give additional books? And if he gave an additional covenant, which we argue is the new covenant, we'd expect additional writings mm. to go with that covenant. So you mentioned that um, this early canon included 22 of the 27 mm-hmm. books of the New Testament. What were the five books that it didn't include? And what should we make of the fact that they aren't there listed that early? Should that make us doubt them a little bit or wonder, are they truly part of this thing called the New Testament? Yeah, I think it's important just to recognize that when people say there was disputes over the canon and controversy over the canon, it really depends on what they mean by that, because the bulk of the canon, there was really no meaningful dispute over. 22 out of 27 were fairly established. So when they say there was disagreement, they mean just over a handful. And the books we have in mind here are books like Second Peter, Second, Third John, Jude, and then maybe James. Um, and you'll notice right out of the gate that these are mostly very small books. Hmm. And this is part of their explanation, is that it takes longer for the smaller books to sort of find a, a firm home in the canon just because they're used so less often. They're quoted so more infrequently. Hmm. And people in one part of the empire may not know about that book yet, even though it may be prevalent in another part of the early Christian movement. And so it's going to take time for the historical dust to settle. What, what I always tell people is, well, you know, if it took a few centuries to get the kinks worked out in some of these smaller books, are, why does that bother you so much? I always find it interesting what people's expectations are. I say, what, what would be good enough for you for you not to be bothered? Is it you expect the canon to be received in like 48 hours or two months or, you know, zero mm-hmm. disagreement and absolute consensus within, you know, 18 days? I mean, what, what, what is enough? And you realize that most people have never thought through that. They never have actually asked what historical circumstances was the canon given in and what would be a reasonable historical pattern for seeing it develop over time. And what I point out to them is that actually what you should be shocked by is not that there was ever any dispute over these smaller books. What you should be shocked by is there was so much unity around the core so early. Yeah. Well, and that might get to the that broader question about misconceptions, because I, I think that people, maybe even without knowing it explicitly, this idea that the canon had to develop over time 
is perhaps in and of itself kind of a an unexpected idea perhaps there's kind of do you ever get the sense that christians some christians have a, a bit of a this book just must have come down from heaven sort of in its complete oh, yeah. form oh yeah i say this to my students all the time is it because we haven't done such a very a very good job in our churches of explaining the origins of the bible when you talk about a book like the bible as divinely inspired and from god if you never explain the origins of the bible people do get the impression Maybe it's not as crass as that, but they do get the impression that something along the lines of dropped directly from heaven mm. is what the Bible is. And, you know, there's other religions that argue stuff like that. I mean, you know, the, the famously, of course, the, the, the Mormons claim that the Book of Mormon was lowered from heaven on golden tablets by the angel Moroni. Right. Which feels kind of nice and clean. Yeah, it's very simple and neat. It's, it's what you might expect, actually, if you're making it up. It's some nice, mm. tidy little system for that. But God decided in his own providence to deliver these books in real time, real space, real history— and there's some messiness associated with that. There's some process associated with that. But that just reminds you that the Christian religion is genuinely historical. And here's, here's my concern about the church. I think the church has looked at the Bible as divinely inspired in such a way that it's almost you know, Gnostic. It's like it doesn't have any real existence in the real world. It's almost this disembodied Bible that you know, was lowered from the sky. Um, and I want to remind people, no, God gave it in a real sort of incarnational way, so to speak, in the real world. Um, and that, that, that's going to explain a lot of the things that maybe are bothersome to us. Mm. You raised this then broader question of church history. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously history is one of those things. There, there are obviously people that we know, maybe, maybe many of the listeners for this show would say that they love history. They're history buffs. But there's a lot of people who just don't probably would say they're, they're not too excited about history and they don't, they don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And yet it seems like an appreciation for history is pretty important for understanding this thing we call the Bible. Um, speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes to the evangelical movement, it's not a new observation to say that evangelicals are rather disconnected from church history. Um, I think there's few that would dispute this. Do you think that's changing? I think it's changing. Historically, you know, if you ask a, a, an evangelical kind of what they knew about church history, they would probably start with the book of Acts, and then they would move to the Reformation, and they would make a few observations there, and then they would skip it to the present. And that's about the extent of it. And, you know, there, this goes back to perhaps from the way we train and educate our churches. But it's an unfortunate reality because when you're, when you're divorced from that, you do get this sort of rather simplistic and maybe even, you know, overly sanitized vision for what church history is. Mm. And what evangelicals need is a good dose of the way it really went down. Um, and so, yeah, we, we need more effort on that front. And I do think it's changing, though. I mean, there's been some, some great examples in recent years of, of a much more attention to the, to the patristic uh, sources. You know, it's, it's Those happening. are the early church Yeah, early, church, early fathers. church fathers. And, you know, th- you look at the discussions over Trinity in the last five to ten years. Thankfully, they've been grounded in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the fathers um, when, when maybe in prior generations that wasn't as prevalent. And I think that's an encouraging sign. Mm. So uh, as we've talked about church history and this progressive development of the church's broad understanding and affirmation of what the canon was, it's a pretty important part of this story. Uh, But it seems like in that answer, uh, there's kind of the presupposition of a kind of confidence in God's providential work, guiding and directing the church at large uh, on this issue to some extent. Uh, Do you resonate with that? Is that a a good way to, to speak about that? Yeah, I think, you know, God's providential oversight of the whole process is a key part of our uh, faith in canon, so to speak, in, in the sense that, of course, if God wanted to give his people his writings, could we not trust that he could orchestrate historical circumstances so they got a reliable version of those? I think that argument is true in a general way, 
my, my caution with that argument is I see people use that argument a little loosely where it can, that argument is, 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 is the entirety of our basis for canon. Mm. Suddenly it's just that, well, I don't have to know the details. I don't have to care about the arguments. I don't have to read the, the opposing views. All I have to do is just chalk it up to, hey, don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? Well, I do. And so therefore, I, I think we have the right canon. And I, I don't want to be dismissive of trust in the sovereignty of God because that's really important. But that way of using it is, is not, I think, the full version that we ought to be seeking. So what other factors then would you want to include in a discussion of why we can have confidence? These, the, let's stipulate that they don't prove beyond some, in some courtroom context that this is... Uh, these are the true words of God, uh, that there is faith involved. Uh, but what are some of those other factors that you would point to? Yeah, so in my book, Canon Revisited, I, I lay out what I call the attributes of canonicity, which every canonical book has. And, and there's three of them. And I think believers can look to any or all of these features to be encouraged that they have the right books. And so we, I argue in the book that every canonical book is, has apostolic connections, so it, it pertains to and contains apostolic tradition. Um, secondly, I argue that these books contain certain qualities internally to them that I think speak to a divine author. Uh, and then thirdly, that they were received uh, eventually by the church and its consensus around them. And if you, there's a lot to say about each of those three, but for the sake of this discussion, you, you can trust the canon for any of those reasons. Just take the last one for a moment. If someone goes, why should I trust these books are from God? And my answer is because God's people for generations, and we think filled with the Holy Spirit, have coalesced around and recognized these books as being the ones that God is speaking in for thousands of years. That's a, that's a valid argument. It's not the totality of everything, but I think it's a key part of why we trust these books. And then, you know, on the flip side, if someone goes, why should I trust these books? I look, we have a reason to think they're, they're, they go back to the apostles, they, that they contain teaching and instruction from those who were Jesus's earliest followers and, and were authorized to speak for him. Mm. And so that's a reason to trust these books. So these are reasons to trust versus proofs um, in some sense. Do you ever get the sense that modern Christians, just people in general, uh, do, do we have this kind of obsession with this idea of proof? Yeah, we do. And, and I talked about this in the introduction to Canon Revisited, which is in that book, and, and even as we're having this dialogue, my, my concern isn't so much some sort of you know, uh, empirical syllogism that the non-Christian can sort of see, it, you know, mathematically proves yeah, these can't books are from God. Yeah, yeah. It's that, you, when you're dealing with history, you don't have that. Um, this isn't mathematics. This is history. What, what, what I want to answer in the book and, and try to answer in the book is, do, do Christians have sufficient grounds for thinking that their belief in these 27 books is, is reasonable and justified? Hmm. Um, and I, I make the case, yeah, we have excellent grounds for our belief in canon, so, so much so that I can say our, our, our knowledge is, is what we might call warranted or justified knowledge. And, uh, and this, of course, is the fundamental question Christians are asking, is it, am I, am I just pretending to know something, or do I have a, a reasonable, think, reasonable uh, basis for thinking I can know it? And those three things I laid out are a reasonable basis for thinking mm. we can know it. So it almost be, it seems like a distinction between sort of this idea of a leap of faith, which can maybe at times feel irrational, it's got those connotations to it, versus reasonable faith, where it's, it's a faith, but it's grounded in good reasons that we can discuss. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're going to argue that the, the Christian's basis for canon is not an irrational one, that we're not just saying, well, I happen, you know, I believe this because I just wish it were true. Mm-hmm. No, we have good basis for believing it, and, um, and, and not just good, I would argue excellent and yeah. divinely given basis for believing it. Well, I want to speak to one more of those reasons then that we can, uh, that is often, uh, especially in the Reformed tradition, emphasized, and it's this notion of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Unpack that for us. It sounds like uh, uh, maybe a bizarre, uh, at least on the surface, it's un- unclear what that would mean. Yeah, so in, in some approaches to canon, you'll, you'll find that people want to validate canon 
in every way they can without ever really considering the content of the canon itself. And so someone will say, well, I'll, I'll validate the canon by doing an analysis of the authors, or I'll validate the canon by doing an analysis of the reception of these books in church history. And those are all important. But what about the books themselves? Is there any reason to think they show evidence of having a divine author? When we read these books, can we see anything in them in terms of their characteristics and their qualities that would indicate a divine author? Um, and this is what Christians have, have, have argued for generations. And I would argue that even that the scriptures themselves indicate this, that, that when, when God speaks, that he doesn't need external validation, that he gives evidence of his own sort of divine qualities. Um, and I think the scriptures give evidence of those divine qualities. And I unpack this at length, of course, in Canon Revisited. But one of the things I want to point out to the listener is that this isn't a new idea that we're making up in the modern day because we have, we're out of arguments, right? Mm-hmm. We're, this is an historic Christian position that when you read these books, you can, you can see the, the, the fingerprints of God all over them. And you'll be interested to know that, and I think people know this intuitively, when most people convert to Christianity, it's not because they've studied the historical evidences. Most of the time it's because they've either read or heard the word taught and recognize that what they're hearing is, is the voice of God. Mm. And now if you started saying, well, what exactly about that word showed you that? Well, they may, may not be able to put full articulation to it, something about its, the, the beauty of it, the excellency of it, the power of it, the harmony of it, the way it all fits together. I mean, they could, they could go down a, a list perhaps. But the reality is, is that when Christ's sheep hear his voice, they know it, mm. and, um, and they follow him. Yeah. So what would your response be to someone who would come back and say that you're essentially just begging the question with that line of reasoning? Yeah. So there's all kinds of objections to the self-authenticating view, and, and one of them is something along the lines of what you indicated, which is, gee, this sounds a lot like subjectivism. It sounds like you're just seeing things that aren't there. Um, you're just wishing they were there and that you're just relying on your own feelings. That's not the argument at all. The argument isn't that I feel really good about these books and therefore they must be from God or that I got this flutter in my heart from mm-hmm. the Spirit and they must be from God. That's not the argument. The argument is that these books actually have objective qualities about them and that those objective qualities, when you recognize them, you can see that they're, they, they point to a divine author. And so the analogy I give is it's, it's like whether you, you can hear whether a, a music is on key or off key. By the way, being on or off key is objective. Not everyone can hear it, mm-hmm. but it is really there. There's some tones and some tunes that are off key and some that are on key. And so, you know, if you don't have the ears to hear it, you may not be able to tell. And so the Bible is giving off a vibe. Some can't hear it, and some can, uh, but that doesn't mean it's subjective. It's an objective reality about these books that we're focused on. Mm. All right, maybe as a second-to-last question, what would you say to the person listening right now who would have to confess they have wrestled with this? This is an issue that they have felt confronted in. They've maybe talked with somebody, an unbeliever, who has challenged them on this. Or maybe just in their own study, they've uh, at times really struggled with knowing, can I trust this Bible? Is this really from God? Are there things that are missing or that were added perhaps that, uh, that aren't actually from God? What encouragement would you offer that person right now? Yeah, well, lots of times when people face those doubts, they feel like, I guess I'm going to either A, live in complete doubt the rest of my life, or B, I have to go get a PhD, and then I can be reassured. And I want to <laughs> tell them that's not, that's not true. What, what I love about the things I've already laid out and that I would argue the Bible lays out is that you can be assured the Bible's from God without knowing everything and without having to go get a PhD and study piles and piles of historical evidences. Because you can, as we've already indicated, look into these scriptures and recognize not only the voice of your Lord in them, but also you can take reassurance that Christians for generations have done exactly the same thing you have. Um, there's that great sort of unity and harmony of the church throughout the ages saying, hey, we see in these books 
mm-hmm. our Lord speaking. And so, yeah, I think you can take comfort in that. Um, you don't have to know everything to take those as good reasons to believe. Mm. All right, one uh, final question, a hypothetical question mm-hmm. that um, I'm sure some someone else listening has right now that would, they would un- want to ask you this. What if archaeologists unearth, uh, you know exactly where I'm going. Yep. I'm sure you hear this I, I, yep. every semester with your students. Yep. Uh, what if they unearthed some previously undiscovered letter, uh, maybe by Paul, uh, that scholars looked at, evangelical scholars looked at and assessed that, no, this, this seems like it really was written by the Apostle Paul. Theologically, it's consistent with the rest of the New Testament and God's revelation in Scripture. Maybe it has a few other things that it says that would be brand new, though. Would you consider that to be inspired Scripture? Would that be something that you would even entertain? Uh, would you say Christians who did were absolutely right or absolutely wrong? How would you handle that? Yeah, so you've just asked the most common question I get, <laughs> and it's the most common question I get because of its complexity and because of its, its difficulty. I, I'll begin by saying I'm, I'm very skeptical that'll ever happen, and I realize that, that no one knows what you'll discover in the sands. I was going to say, we're going to have it locked in, though, in forever audio. So yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll have well, a follow-up. Know, happy to be proven wrong, but I mean, statistically, I, it's like, will you discover life on other planets? You know, I, I can say I think it's <laughs> unlikely, but maybe someday it'll happen. Who knows? Um, but I think these kinds of questions, though, they do, these hypotheticals that are maybe bordering on absurd can still help to uh, elucidate the principles oh, behind course. these kinds of questions. And that's why we need to have an answer to it, even if we think it's unlikely. So my answer is I go back and forth. Um, in Canon Revisited, I argued that I don't think we would consider these books canonical if we found a lost writing of Paul and could somehow authenticate it. And part of the reason is because of the, the way you define canon. Canon is, by definition, a foundational book, a book that the church has received, affirmed, and used as part of its heritage. Uh, so there is, a, there is a limited window of time that, that yeah, the canon so, was being... You know, part, of, part of what makes the canon the canon is, is, the, is the history of usage that, that, that the church has had for these books and the way that bears out reasons to think they're from God because of the church's sort of historical affirmation of them. But when you have a book that has no historical affirmation, or at least very little, you lose that. And so in, in Canon Revisited, I argued, therefore, I don't think they would be considered canonical. But then, you know, you know about every 48 hours, I flip over to the other side <laughs> and say, well, you know, if it, if it is from Paul and... You know, how we would authenticate that is, is, is another conversation. If it is from Paul, then why would we not consider it part of the canon? So, so I don't know if there's a firm answer to that. Mm. And I don't know if we, we, we need to have a firm answer to that. I think, I think both sides have, have their case to be made. Yeah. It seems like uh, you've kind of made this case throughout our conversation today that part of the idea of canonicity, though, you can't separate canonicity from the idea of the church globally uh, affirming or recognizing in some kind of corporate way the significance, the reality of these books. No, that's exactly right. And I, I make a, a lot of this in my book, Canon Revisited. There's a corporate, and I even use the term covenantal reception, that's so key to what makes canon canon. So we in our American mindset tend to individualize it. So it's like, what do I think about the canon? And do I know about the canon? And, and do I affirm, you know, and, you know, of course, you eventually have to make up your mind about what you believe. But, but the canon is not an individualistic issue. It's a corporate issue that, mm. that, that not an individual Christian decides, but that the church decides globally, but also historically. And, uh, and I think that once you realize that, it, it, it does take some of the pressure off, so to speak. And it also helps you remind you that, that you know, I got, I got to look beyond myself here yeah. um, to have some assurance of what, what I'm reading. Yeah, that sounds like that's a fodder for a whole other conversation about the, the historical tradition and uh, the corporate nature of our faith and mm-hmm. the things that we believe. But that will have to wait for a, another time. 
Well, thank you so much, Michael, for spending some time with us today and helping us to, I think, answer some questions or at least uh, get some, uh, some more helpful reasons for why we believe the Bible is what we say it is. Absolutely. Fun conversation. That was Michael Kruger on the formation of the canon. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Canon Revisited, establishing the origins and authority of the New Testament books. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.